Welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us in our second podcast in our series of three related to neoliberalism's impact on social welfare practice in the United States. Um, last podcast, the first one, we looked more carefully or maybe more broadly at what neoliberalism is um, to try to understand the complicated idea that has a ton of power in our social serving systems. And today we are going to focus more on what that might actually look like in practice, focusing on child welfare practice, child protection, uh, and all of the different sort of services that help children at risk for out-of-home placement. And um, we will start off by just reminding ourselves a little bit about what neoliberalism is, because repetition is important with this concept, and then uh, moving into uh, what it looks like in child welfare, how it's impacting child welfare services, and then turning the corner a little bit to think about what can we do about it as child welfare workers? What, what are some things, ideas um, that, that will help us think about how can we can play a role maybe uh, addressing it. And um, without further ado, let's get started. My name is Jessica Toft. And I'm Ruti um, Sofer Elikave. And uh, we are going to just jump into it. First of all, I want to say that Rudy is, has been the research assistant um, on this project this whole year, and it's, it's, there's a variety of aspects of it. Again, this, the information from this project uh, comes from our, our project on neoliberal impacts on social work practice in the United States. Um, and I chair that project, and Rudy's been a really important uh, part of that project, and she is now a PhD candidate. Congratulations, Rudy. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and um, and uh, going to be moving back to Israel here fairly soon. And so, um, and I know you've had a lot of practice experience there in Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, you you did work with families and children there. Yeah, I worked in um, foster care agency for over ten years with different communities. Yeah. And you were uh, a supervisor and a direct practice worker. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yes. And a manager at times. And a manager at times. <laughs> so, so you're going to have great perspective on this. You can play many roles as we uh, as yeah. we move through this topic. Um, so, thank you for being a part of this project, and I'm excited to yeah, talk about course. it uh, some more. So, I think we wanted. Um, so, in our first podcast, we talked a lot of, a lot about what neoliberalism is and effects on social policy and social work, but. It would be great, Jessica, if you can remind us a little bit about what, how does neoliberalism relate to social work and child welfare work? Sure. Um, well, if, if you listen to the first podcast, you know neoliberalism isn't an easy concept to totally grasp. But I think that for our purposes, we can uh, think about neoliberalism as a governing principle. It's a way of approaching um, how to order and organize um, government. Um, and that, that's one aspect of it. Um, and so um, in neoliberalism, the governing pr principle is that free markets are the most important um, aspect of um, social life, and we should endorse free markets um, and their uh, well-being um, by reducing business regulations and withdrawing welfare state protections. Um, and so it's partly economic policy that's endorsing free markets and reducing business regulations, 
but also requires change in our political and social and cultural um, word, worlds and practices too, in order to support these markets. So this is where social work comes in and plays an important role. Um, for example, if we think about social policies that would promote neoliberalism would be those kinds of policies that limit worker protections, that make people, um, compel people to have to work in the market. So, um, and often without support. So you know, we've had a lot, we've seen over the last, you know, four decades, a, a real decline in unions, for example. Um, and right to work policies might be part of that. We've seen limits to healthcare accessibility. Um, even though we had the Affordable Care Act, uh, which was um, uh, a move in the opposite direction, it's still within the model of markets um, rather than yep. say, a social healthcare system. We see limits to food supports where work requirements are attached to um, receiving SNAP benefits. And states actually have to waive that requirement in order to offer food stamps without having people engage in work. Um, family assistance. Uh, TANF um, being a prime example of neoliberalism, where in order to receive benefits, parents must engage in paid work. So, um, you know, markets need these low wage and flexible workers in order to compete, especially in a global market. So they would argue, you know, um, proponents of neoliberalism would argue we need to have access to workers and we need to have them be able to engage in paid work in a flexible way. Um, so this really promotes markets, perhaps over the well-being of of families and children and just um, and workers um, and their interests, perhaps. So these are really um, large scope overarching um, policies that you were talking about. But in addition to the large welfare state policies, how else is neoliberalism um, seen in social policy that we can feel? Yeah, this is so this is part of the peeling back the onion of neoliberalism. And I think there are a couple <laughs> of books that can be really helpful to get our thinking in the right headspace. So historically, uh, Cloward and Piven wrote a really influential work in 1971, and it was called Regulating the Poor, the Functions of Public Welfare. Um, and then later on, a lot of our social work uh, students listening will, will have read um, Mimi Abramovitz's Regulating the Lives of Women in 1988. Um, so these are both examples of how the government plays a role in regulating low-income populations in order to have them be available for the market. Um, and then more recently, and, and those ones are, are really before neoliberalism is getting a strong look or is really being considered, especially 1971 would be really early end of neoliberalism. But um, uh, more recently, Loach Vacant wrote a book called Punishing the Poor, Neoliberal Government of Social Insecurity. And this is a look at the regulating uh, work of our carceral systems, our policing, our prisons. Um, and boy, this is certainly relevant today when here in Minneapolis we are reeling with the death of uh, George Floyd and uh, talking about things of even defunding <laughs> the police. So um, that is a really interesting book to think about today. And, think. and then we can think about even the more recent book in 2011 of Joe Sauce, who's here at the University of Minnesota, along with his colleagues Fording and Schramm. They wrote a text called Disciplining the Poor, uh, Neoliberal Paternalism and the Persistent Power of Race. And they write about um, public assistance and uh, even substance abuse programs and demonstrate how neoliberalism is used as a way of um, limiting and regulating the poor in, in, into systems 
uh, paternalist sort of welfare systems. Um, so this is a good backdrop for us to think about child welfare systems. It's also a public system, and it's also run by the state and the counties. Is you know I'm using state as a big in a big term way here, um, but I think it's important for us to think about how are we as social workers and child welfare workers perhaps a part of systems that um, work in ways that um, might play a role that aren't always beneficial to the clients. And maybe they're working towards the roles of markets or other interests that are, are maybe not the, the families or clients or, or citizens um, directly. Yeah, that, that sounds very interesting and important. Can you be a little bit more specific about how this works, how yeah. social services systems are playing a role in this? Yeah, you know, um, I think it's important for us to think about, first of all, the principle of the political reasoning of neoliberalism that Wendy Brown, this political philosopher who's written so much about this, has talked about. Um, she says that neoliberalism requires that all social life, including social institutions, that their work should mirror the model of the market. Um, and so within that are ideas that individuals should be thought of as solely as economic actors. Um, and by the way, we're all just self-interested and we're rational decision makers. You know, all the we can figure out based on information uh, our best choices as rational beings. This is what neoliberalism would say. So competition is an important principle in neoliberalism, that we should constantly be in competition with other people and um, in social institutions, that social institutions should compete because competition leads to efficiency, is the idea. Um, also that because we're individually responsible, we have to unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? Well, that means that we need to gather all of the relevant information as individuals and we must accurately predict all the possible outcomes of our actions and um, and through that, we should be able to predict those outcomes. And if those and if we choose unwisely, we should therefore therefore bear the full risk is one of the ideas so that it, it responsabilizes individuals for all of the possible variables in um, one's life and makes them uh, responsible for it. Um, interactions are transactional exchanges. So I'm going to give you this if you give me that sort of the quid pro quo. Uh, again, efficiency um, as an idea of being a really important idea um, for social institutions, um, as well as how we live our lives in terms of time and getting as much done as we possibly can. Um, and that because of this, um, you know, we have to be flexible. We have to accept risk as individuals where there's consequences. And, um, it, you know, this really leads to a state of insecurity rather than one of security because it, all of these things come down to our individual choices. So um, that's that's so important. And how does how does this bear on social work practice specifically, like the philosophy yeah. in what we're doing? Yeah. So we can take this philosophy and think about those social institutions that social workers work in, that these, this model of economic markets are overlaid, not just on our personal lives, but they're also taken and they're overlaid on social institutions too. So the competition principle, we can see that among agencies vying for a contract, you know, I can do this for this much money, you know, I can do it lower. I can, I can give you more. Um, we can even see it within agencies among workers, you know, who's going to have the best numbers, who's going to be the most efficient, who's going to have the be most productive. Um, the individual responsibility principle, we can see that clients are being, uh, I mean, workers are being responsibilized 
uh, if you could see my air quotes as I'm talking here, the brain responsibilized <laughs> because um, they are, the outcomes of their clients are really being put onto them, you know, that the how well they get them uh, through their system and then out the door uh, becomes all of their part, their responsibility um, without regard to maybe some of the larger environmental issues or, or circumstances of the individual. Um, and we likewise see that with clients, they become totally responsible for their life outcomes, regardless of the oppressions or the poverty or et cetera, that might be working in their lives. Um, efficiency in work um, is really important, uh, you know, to do things quickly and to do them timely way. But this, you know, competes with ideas of equity and about what's the best way to work with the family for the best outcomes for them and maybe driven by their ideas of what, what, is, what are good outcomes. Uh, we see um, the transaction piece can be seen in contracts. You know, that, uh, we're going to do this. If you get this kind of outcome, we're going to pay you. Is sort of how the state sets up contracts with social services. And we see this then workers working with parents in the same way. If you do X, Y, and Z, then you can have this, this benefit or you can have maybe this visitation with your child or, you know, those sorts of, those sorts of arrangements. Um, finally, I think about neoliberalism, it, it, it has an emphasis on risk and probabilities, which are often gauged to large groups. And then we are forced to use them individually, the sort of risk reduction model on individual clients, which then focuses on reducing risk, which is a different positioning than possibilities based on maybe individual circumstances of a family. Um, their life story, um, maybe the relationship and the skill that the worker, either the social worker, or the child welfare worker has with the, has with the um, client. So these are ways that we can see neoliberalism is impacting social work agencies, practice, and the, and the relationship of, of workers with their clients. So you seem to move really quickly from social policy, which we talked about at the beginning, mm -hmm. to... Um, frontline social work practice but isn't there something also in between how this works yeah. to get there yeah 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 so um just as a way to think about it i mean neoliberalism is working on multiple levels of our of our government system and you know we as social workers direct practice social workers see it on one one level but we can think about it uh, neoliberalism as um applied maybe even at uh, just to think about it at, at a legislative level maybe there's a policy that is pro that is passed and then it moves to a state agency who has to take the spirit and maybe the directives of the policy but they have to write rules which make it more explicit um, so there are places within that there where neoliberalism could definitely be evident um, we think about HMOs and third-party contracts being written between the state and HMOs for example and then from there, you know, nonprofits and even private agencies, private for-profit agencies are vying for contracts that then are um, created at uh, the rulemaking level, at the state level, and they try to get uh, contracts and work so their agency can survive. Um, and then their uh, program managers and then supervisors within these agencies, it's another way in which neoliberalism can be implemented at that level. And finally, down to direct practice social worker and certainly to our clients and service users. Um, so this is, you know, probably something that we could think if we really thought about it, we could pull these pieces out uh, and see them as distinct areas of decision making and practice. 
But I want us to challenge us to think about um, uh, our ideas and the ways in which we think of things as being maybe common sense. So um, a number of researchers have written about um, governance and logic and processes of logic and that we can take up ideas and ways of thinking about the world and just apply them without reflection after a while. So I think neoliberalism is a good example of a logic that is being applied to all realms of, of our lives and certainly in our social institutions. Um, so that might be another way to think about uh, an aspect of this framework. And even overarching all of that, would be the discourse. How do we think about ourselves as citizens and residents and people in the world? Are we thinking about ourselves as full humans or are we thinking about ourselves as economic actors and human capital? Um, and and how, does this, these, how do these ideas find themselves, let's say in our direct practice with our, with our client? How much do we focus on, on, the, on their paid work? How much do they focus on them completing tasks um, their efficiencies, et cetera. So those are some ways that we could think about how neoliberalism is sort of imbued in many um, steps of our uh, social service systems. And so it's really everywhere. Yeah, it's really everywhere. And in fact, <laughs> Wendy Brown would say we're all neoliberals and, uh, and we're, you know, it's, it's the water in which we swim, uh, which I think is interesting because yeah. I think not many of us really understand it. Um, because we don't see it, it's just yeah. there. Yeah. And some would say that's part of why it's so powerful, because we don't see it. Um, so, Rudy, I'd like to have, ask you a few questions, because I think this is really, you know, you, you've worked in this area, and I, and I know that you're coming to the United States from Israel, but you've been here for quite a while now, and you've been working on this with us here. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, um, in our scoping review project, because you're the most knowledgeable of this literature, um, I thought it was interesting that we found that child welfare services was the most common service topic found out of all of our literature. Um, and since you know that literature quite well, I was hoping that you could tell us more about what is known about neoliberalism and maybe in child welfare. I'll just leave it open for you. Yeah, yeah. well, I think it, it makes sense that child welfare takes so much room because it's so much of what we do as social workers mm -hmm. and part of our work. But still, even though we found 24 articles that address child welfare at some level, I'm afraid that not enough is known at the moment. Um, and this is just in the United States, right? This isn't just yes, isn't global. just in oh, the United States. Right. Um, very, um, we were looking only in the United States. So out of the 24 articles that we found, if we're looking back at the levels that you talked um, about just now, only three articles really address the discourse level. I mean, what does what's behind what's happening in the child welfare system. And most of the articles, 15 of them, address the governance level. How is this, be, how is this being implemented? So mostly how privatization and devolution of services have affected child welfare on the agency level. And what are the outcomes of that? So we're not, um, researchers in child welfare are not looking about why this is happening. They're, they're looking at the practice. And that's very social worky, right? We're, we're, we're doing, we're, we're doing, we're implementing, technique. we're working <laughs> technique. We're going to the next step. We don't have time yeah. to um, be philosophers. We're very pragmatic, which is, of course, um, part of the beauty of our job. But we also need to be committed to our values of social justice and reform and equity and all those things. So um, 
only three articles address that level. And most of the articles were really looking at the practice of privatization, what's working, what's not working, how might we do this better, um, how our agencies of nonprofit agencies and private agencies are working together with government agencies and how these partnerships might um, working. And it's also interesting to see that out of these 24 articles, seven articles addressed frontline workers' experiences. So there's an emphasis on how um, workers are experiencing burnout and retention. There's looking into how training is different in this era of privatization. So of course, this was privatization was also before. This is not new to the US, but it was really pushed forward um, in the last um, few decades. And it's also very interesting to see that nine articles addressed clients and how clients' outcomes were changing, but they weren't looking into clients' voices. We hardly hear those. We don't know how children are experiencing these changes, how families are experiencing these changes in their real lives. So there's a lot of um, interest in the outcome benchmarks, which is very neoliberal, of course, like you said. So we're looking at how many what are the numbers? What are the numbers of adoption? What are the numbers of reunification? But we're not hearing the voices. What is happening to the people in these numbers? Wow, really interesting that we, uh, you know, we know that there's so much turnover in child protection and child welfare, mm -hmm. um, especially. So it made this is this. I'm not surprised to see that um, about burnout and retention. Um, hear about that. But um, I'm also um, interested in that clients are actually being looked at, but it's really only the numbers rather than what's their experience of this. For the most, for the yeah. most part. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so how about the agencies themselves? How would you say that neoliberalism um, is impacting child welfare agencies and organizations? Yeah, so, so that's, that is really the heart of it, um, of the studies that we found that we're talking about the effects on child welfare because they're talking about practices of privatization, which is a common way of neoliberal thought. So we're we're already thinking um, privatization is a good thing. So let's see how are we doing? How are we doing it? Can we do it any better? Uh, how? What are the changes that need to be implemented? And um, agencies are really um, being contracted by governments and states by um, defining market outcomes. So they're saying, okay, you're going to get monetary, um, you're going to get, we're going to, we're going to, you, we're going to evaluate your performance by these benchmarks and you're going to be contracted um, by reaching these benchmarks. So we're looking at reunification, we're looking at adoption, we're looking at um, how fast agencies are able to make placements, any kinds of placements, and we're not um, looking into the processes and the well-being. So if we go back in 1997, there was the Federal Adoption and Safe Families Act that was really meant to increase family reunification and adoption by family members, um, but also it it pushed this turn into looking only at outcomes rather than at processes. So if I'm a if I'm a child welfare agency, a nonprofit that's working in foster care, I'm going to look at how am I going to place a child the fastest mm -hmm. in a foster family. And I'm in competition with you that you have your own um, nonprofit agency for foster families. 
and we might be competing mm. for funding over the same children, mm. right? Yeah. So you're going to want to find a family faster than me. So we might decide to, okay, I have a family right here. I'm going to take it, even though it might not be the best placement for this child. I need to have a placement this month or else I won't reach my benchmark. So that's what I'm going to do. And it might be at the expense of the well-being of the child. And it might be also a placement that will last two weeks. Yes. But that's not what is being counted. What's being counted is how many placements were actually made. It's, it's a, such an interesting combination of both outcomes and time. You know, efficiency yes. is it, it's a speed. Exactly. It's part of this. Speed is very, very important. We're, we're looking into numbers. So in a way, it's important to say this too. If I'm a... If, the goal of us as a society is to prevent abuse and to protect children. That's not what we're doing. We're looking, me as a foster care agency, I'm looking to put, to have placements. So I'm not going to be doing prevention. I'm not going to be doing other things for the community and for the welfare of children. I just want to find placements for these children. So for me, it might even be beneficial that more children will be removed from their homes rather than keeping their keeping them at home. So you, you, what you're highlighting here is probably this, this conflict of interest that we, yes. you know, we have our primary interest as social workers of, of helping families and social workers and child welfare helping families. And that's why we come to this work in the first place. And yet then there's this speed interest and pressure that we feel and so maybe it maybe it mm -hmm. it pushes us sometimes to make decisions we wouldn't otherwise make yeah yeah interesting so um well and i might lose my job right if i'm a worker yeah. and i didn't have enough placements i'm gonna lose my job because i didn't reach my benchmark yes it, it's it does put a lot of pressure there's a there must be a constant sort of calculus here in one's mind about how do yeah. i how do i how do I work with yeah. this family that meets both their needs and the needs of my agency? And it's exactly. difficult. Well, um, so uh, can you tell us about some of the ways that agencies um, do address trying to achieve these outcomes? Like, what does it look like? Oh, so, so there's so many ways that this is happening. So, right, the U.S. is a huge place. And um, to begin with, practices of child welfare are different. But in um, this environment they're even more different than what they were so this has some advantages so some agencies were very successful in implementing um, professional and beneficial ways of working with children and families um, um, for instance Cohen and Cooper in 1999 evaluated a program in California that developed additional resources for kinship foster care families and they did amazing work with the community they really engaged the community and brought more services to um, families that were providing foster uh, kinship foster care and we know from the literature and from reality that these are families with many more needs a lot of times so this agency for instance addressed community needs and bigger structures and was able to raise funds to do that um, but other studies have showed that there wasn't any advantage actually to privatization over government-based um, agencies. And um, this is very interesting because we're still continuing to privatize things, even though research hasn't found that it's actually beneficial in child welfare specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I wanted to highlight that some scholars and researchers have been encouraging um, marketization of agencies and of um, 
services. So for instance, Blackstone, Buck and Hakim in 2004, they took marketizations of services sort of to the next level. And in my opinion, too far, they were recommending to use an auction model to support adoption. Hmm. So they're suggesting opening the market for adoption, for adopting children to prospective parents nationwide that will bid for a child. That's wow. alarming. Wow. And, yes, that is. Yeah. yeah. And so sort of the, the highest bidder who was qualified enough would be the one that the that the state would, that was, this is the model? Yeah. The state would choose? Yeah. Um, so the, their assumption is that um, there are a lot of children waiting for adoption and there are not enough families and, and services aren't making enough placements yeah. for adoption. And um, in order to do better, we can use a market-based um, model of auctioning. So families that have been qualified to adopt will just bid for children. And I don't know, for me, there's like the image yeah. of um, old <laughs> um, yeah. orphanages yeah. and the, the family comes and looks at the children and says, I want this yes. one because he's the orphan blue eyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, there's more here to it. There's money. And people that will have yeah. more money and will have um, other things will be able to bid higher for a child. Right. And um, and the and then the states who who would be receiving that money that would be there would be again one of the a potential conflict of interest about you'd be pushed to want to get the highest bidder because that would be more money for your funds for your services. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they were suggesting also to keep the money for. The children, it's not the state isn't going to benefit. Ah, okay. The children of the state will benefit from it. But still, we're we're turning children into um, commodities. Well, you know, what this raises to me is that the, the idea of marketizing social welfare, you, the first example in California sounds like that actually was fairly successful, but it was for a really specific um, area. It was to develop more services for kinship foster care. It was, it was sort of like... Uh, an ancillary um, satellite sort of market where mm -hmm. you could kind of, you know, a small creativity uh, could be used. Yes. And then when you apply that to how children should be adopted or et cetera, all of a sudden this, this profit motive tends to be really clear um, and, and, and probably um, yeah. harmful. Right. <laughs> so I, I would think and, yeah. I, and I think we, we need to reflect back on our values all the time. What what are we doing here? Who are we providing for? Yes. What is the purpose of this? Well, I think about the workers too. asking workers to be in the middle of these uh, interactions with families uh, and um, parents and children and in their institutions, it must, it must be a wearing thing to have sort of, to always have a market perspective on, to always sort of be, feel like you have to be efficient and productive. Can you, can you talk more about how neoliberalism in this way has affected child welfare workers? Yeah, so we found seven studies that um, addressed the issue of child welfare workers at some level. And um, most of them really found that um, training was an issue. There was a lot of turnover. There's more burnout. Um, there's effects on work-family balance. There's effect about commitment of workers to their agency and to their work. Um, so there's, um, I mean, turnover isn't new to child welfare, but we see it higher in um, nonprofit and for-profit agencies. So, for instance, a study by Levi Portner and Lieberman from 2002, they found that privatized child welfare staff that worked under performance-based contracts, so that's really 
what we're talking about, the benchmarks, put workers under increased pressure to meet deadlines mm. for achieving permanency, for finalizing adoption, for placing children with relatives. And they found that these workers had higher rates of work-family conflict specifically, but also of they had lower rates of job satisfaction. And these two variables also predicted workers' intention to quit their jobs. So this really talks about um, burnout and turnover, which we don't want in child welfare. And we know from the literature that um, workers' turnover is harmful for children and for their placements in child welfare. Yes, and um, this it just reminds me that um, these performance contracts, they sound uh, to, to, to the listening ear outside, they sound like a great idea, right? Let's get people performing uh, quickly yeah. and efficient and they'll mm -hmm. get these outcomes uh, done, but um, uh, these outcomes realized, but then we have these families and how um, how hard it must be for them and then how the workers are in the, in the position of having to work with a really um, pressurized uh, work environment. Yeah, and we have to remember that there's not... Um, a ton of funds here, right? So caseloads are growing. They're not getting any smaller and workers are working under um, circumstances that pressure is, is all the time getting higher and higher. So efficiency isn't doesn't mean that, okay, you're done right. <laughs> and you can go home. You're just going to get more. <laughs> what, what, what's the literature showing us? How is it affecting child welfare workers under neoliberalism? Yeah, so we found seven studies that addressed this issue at, at some level or another. And most of them looked into um, workers' turnover, workers' burnout, work-family balance, training issues, and also workers' commitment to their agency and to their work. And um, Levi Portner and Lieberman conducted a study in 2012, for instance, and they found that privatized child welfare staff that worked under performance-based contracts that put workers under increased pressure to meet the deadlines for achieving mm -hmm. permanency, for finalizing adoptions, for placing children with relatives. And this caused workers to have higher rates of work-family conflict and also higher rates of, um, not higher rates, lower rates of job satisfaction. And these variables also predicted workers' intention to quit their jobs. So being under this constant pressure wasn't was affecting workers' well-being, including um, retention. Wow, that's that's fascinating, and um, it seems like we should do even more work about what uh, interviewing child welfare workers, like what's their experience, the quality of their definitely. Work. Yeah. We we don't have their voices enough. There's there's more to be heard, and um, LaRose in 2016 also showed how neoliberalism affected workers by holding them responsible for fine outcomes. We talked about accountability and individualized responsibility. So this is really talking about that. And um, she also mentioned how workers had to be, were held liable for their client mm -hmm. outcomes. And this was very distressful for these workers. And maybe we'll mention more about that later, but um, workers come to do a good job with families and having such large caseloads and being under so much pressure just causes them at the end to leave. Right. And well, you think coming to your work with a, a, um, so many skills and understanding and value base um, and, and maybe not being able to use them the way that you imagined or that you hoped for um, makes, makes it difficult. 
uh, proposition. Um, Very much. And you hear people in, in, in that are studying to be social workers, they say, oh, I'm not going to go to child welfare and child protection because I hear it's terrible. Mm. You can't do your job. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and neoliberalism affects all, all areas of social work, right? It's not just child protection. Yeah. Um, but Definitely. What, but what yeah. else should we understand about child welfare work, uh, specifically under neoliberalism? Um, I think we have a lot more to learn. And um, one of the things I would say we need to put an emphasis on is really the effects of marketization of children on society as a whole. Right. So we're looking at children as commodities and um, this has an effect on all of us and how we're helping children, how we're acting as families. Mm -hmm. So Finn, Nibel and Shook in 2010, for instance, that looked into these processes of marketization and globalization, they argued that a critical grasp of economic globalization and neoliberalism is really key to understanding what's happening and the context of practicing with children and youth. Because childhood and youth are being constructed in a different way in in terms of economic uncertainty, right? Because everything is about the money rather than the relationships. Yeah, I think about uh, how if if even the middle class is, is living in a field mm -hmm. of insecurity, we focus more on the human capital of our children. How can we invest in them? Yeah. How can we buy the yeah. the best camp or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can mm -hmm. imagine for poor children... Um, this is a really difficult thing because the low resource families have less access to invest in, into human capital uh, if, if we're using that model. But that certainly has an impact yeah. on family life. Yeah. yeah. And specifically within child welfare. So services to our most vulnerable populations are given to um, the highest bidder. And in this case, mm -hmm. it's, it's even the lowest bidder because um Governments are going to contract with agencies that are going to say, we're going to do the same job for less money. But less money means um, really compromising on um, the quality of services. Right. And, um, and it I seems like um, this, it puts social workers in a really difficult position. Um, partly, you know, we're, we are of the system in a way. When you talk about commodifying Children, I think about commodifying social problems, you know, mm -hmm. the ways that we set up social problems so that we work on them, maybe one person at a time, um, and with the best intentions, but yet if, we can also see that, that we have a position and a profession. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, the cynic might say what's good for business is more business. And so, mm -hmm, exactly. so maybe we need to yeah. think about, take back, <laughs> this is so, as a philosopher, the, uh, the ruling yeah. philosopher of this podcast at this moment, um, maybe I will um, talk about philosophy a little bit more um, and think about street level bureaucracy as a way of thinking about democracy, perhaps. Um, and Rudy, you've heard me talk about street yeah. level <laughs> bureaucracy yes. in, in the past. I think yes. it does relate here. Um, First of all, I think we think about our social institutions as humanly constructed, you know, that, that they're, they're not out of nature, they're not inevitable, they are created and thought through and they're practiced and performed by human beings. So that means we can change our institutions too. And institutions are, you know, we could think of them as being both rules, uh, you know, policy rules, 
uh, institutional rules, but they also are performed by individuals who have discretion and judgment. So enter social workers here, you know, as, as having discretion and, and judgment. Um, so structural conditions can sometimes put parameters around our discretion, you know, how what our organizations look like. So the structure of the agency, maybe how hierarchical it is, how many resources we have at our fingertips. Um, what are the workload pressures we feel based on our supervision expectations from our, you know, from our supervisors? Um, what are the rules and constraints we have um, from, uh, from our organizations? And even the organizational climate, if it's one of uh, maybe egalitarianism or a connection with families, et cetera, it would be um, very different than uh, this one of efficiencies that we're painting um, with the, what the research is showing. Um, but then for social workers to be the actors within these institutions that they have discretion and judgment, um, you know, discretion really becomes a political act because uh, we as social workers and child welfare workers have influence over the access of our families, the citizens, the residents of our communities to social services and welfare benefits that are that represent rights of social rights of citizens um, and we also have discretion um, in terms of how we interact with them and their experience of trying to access those services and in fact there is some research that shows that the type of interaction and the degree of the responsiveness of the street level bureaucrat uh, also known as the social worker or child welfare worker signals something to their clients about who they are in the state as a political actor. So Joe Sass, who's here at the University of Minnesota, did a, uh, a, um, a study where um, women in public welfare uh, offices um, accessing AFDC, probably the last year AFDC was even around, um, found that how the worker interacted with, with them impacted their sense of their political efficacy, whether or not they could actually make a change in the politics, even outside of the welfare office, who they were as a democratic actor in society. So what's important for us to understand is that child welfare workers, social workers, um, we mediate the, this relationship. We're sending signals to our clients about their relationship with their state, with their democracy, and how we interact with them and what we um, choose to uh, offer, provide, and do for them tells them something about themselves. So this is an important role for us. Um, and Definitely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, thinking about child welfare, you know, what are your thoughts about how child welfare can maybe emphasize, instead of a neoliberal practice, maybe more this idea of a democratic practice? valuing human practice. Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways um, child welfare workers can do that. And it starts with what you said is this the human interaction and how that's happening between workers and the families that they're um, providing services to, but also how we look at ourselves and at our workplace. So we can make our voices heard. We can do different things to do that. And I want to highlight an interesting initiative that one of the articles discussed. So La Rosa from 2016 described how child welfare workers in Washington state were constantly experiencing increase in their workloads. And um, they, they decided to do something about it. The workers have decided to do something about it. And they produced a YouTube video about their work reality, about their caseloads, about their 
um, increased liability and how that affected them and their clients. And this YouTube video hit like, um, I think over 5 million wow. uh, views. Yeah. So people were interested. And it, people were interested and people responded to it, yeah. including policymakers. Uh -huh. So they were able to make that change. And one of the things that helped them was that they were unionized and they were, they had a back. They felt they can, they can say what they, what was going on without getting hurt, without being fired. Yeah. And a lot of people don't feel that in um, the private sector in the nonprofits and for profit agencies. Right. And there's an interesting article by Mosley and Ross from 2011 that they said that that's a misconception. So workers in, in nonprofits and in for profits, can still be advocates. It's not against the law. It's not against their contract. So, and if it is in their contract, maybe they should do something about it. Because as social workers, we have um, part of our job is to be advocates, is to look at a, how we're creating a more just society. It's not only on the individual level, and we have a commitment to our communities and to our clients and to society. So one way might be to organize. One Another way is to organize amongst us as social workers, but there's also advocacy that we can do together with our clients, which brings us together. So we can write mm -hmm. letters to the legislator by social workers and clients or only by social workers, but everything is is available. But we can also go to our boards and to our associations and ask them to be accountable for our work, ask them to help us mm -hmm. make a change in our work environments, because that's what they're there for. Yeah. And we're not alone in this. We have to remember that we can do more together. I love that you, you brought up um, that there's some misperception about what people can do in terms of their advocacy. And um, there is a, there's an article, I'm missing the name right now, but we'll be sure that we put it on as on part of the reading <laughs> list that goes over really clearly. It's, it's much more expansive than most social workers think that about the kinds of political work that we can do um, on behalf of our, uh, of our clients and social issues, et cetera. And I love that you bring up um, NASW and the Board of Social mm -hmm. Work, both as yeah. a professional association and our licensing boards that these uh, they should also be looking out for the well-being of the profession, but also of clients. And that's what that's what the Board of Social Work is for, is to protect the mm -hmm. public. Great. And I, and I do want to give an example from my work in Israel, because we had a big um, social workers um, strike mm. um, a few years back. And, you know, a lot of people say social workers shouldn't do that and they're just hurting their clients. And that's that might be true at some level but then there was so much backing from clients for social workers mm -hmm. to achieve their rights in their workplace because that gives that gives voice also to the people that we work with because if we're going to be working in better conditions the services we're going to be giving are going to be better so it doesn't mm -hmm. we don't have to be unionized for that but we can do a lot of things together with our clients for both for everybody that reminds me of the um, the nurses' strikes and the teacher strikes recently. Um, mm -hmm. Really yeah. trying to benefit benefit their students and their patients by benefiting those who work with them, or by improving their yes. work lives. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was a lot of solidarity here yeah. of parents and families with teachers and with nurses. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to add about this about what social workers can do, what, yeah. Um, you know, I can't help but think about this present moment that we're in right now here in Minneapolis. And 
uh, in Minnesota and how our experience with George Floyd um, has sparked a global protest. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if there's a, if neoliberalism is to reduce um, the idea of the human down to an individual market actor with only with, with self-interests, the, these protests are an expression of the opposite. This is an example of people coming together, of solidarity, and looking at other systems that are created that um, that may impact groups differentially. Um, and I think that we should think about that. We should look at our systems and think reflectively. How do our systems of, of helping people, especially um, oppressed or vulnerable or disenfranchised or poor people, um, how are we affecting them? Um, and you know, neoliberalism calls for us not to think about techniques as much as to think about ideas. Um, and that's been the power of neoliberalism is that ideas have permeated all these different kinds of social institutions that we are a part of from our workplaces to our educational systems, to our family lives, to our individual thoughts. And we need to think on that scale, I think, in a counter of some kind. And we're going to do it right here in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to start here. Here's the seed. But uh, and, and this is being thought all you know many other places. But I do think that we need to think beyond techniques when we're thinking about what is good child welfare practice to ideas and philosophies, um, and our social institutions that they're not just rules that we have to follow, but they are animated and enacted by individuals you and me who are social workers, child welfare workers, and um, that we have some power over these and we have a ways to push back. Um, so since these systems are created by humans, we can change them also. And so social workers have had a long history of being change agents. And I think we should uh, take up this mantle again and think about how are we maybe uh, promoting um, some of these neoliberal um, agendas. Um, so, you know, we can think of democracy. I've said this in the last podcast, but I think it's a good mm -hmm. thought for us to think about what is our challenging idea. Um, and if, if neoliberalism is interested in individual responsibility and accountability, well, democracy is, we can say, is interested in social responsibility and shared risk. Um, if neoliberalism focuses, you know, primarily on efficiency of systems, we can think about democracy as a possible avenue for promoting equity of systems and, and how we treat people, not just equally, because sometimes we don't want to treat them equally, but with an end towards equity, that we're thinking about how can we have, uh, how we are all of equal moral worth, and how can we treat people so that their lived, exper lived experiences are, are more similar to one another rather than so unequal from one another. Um, Neoliberalism, if it's about in, uh, you know reducing individual risk as a way of thinking about practice, well, democracy you can think about preventing social problems, uh, promoting public well-being. Uh, this again, the ideas of a national health insurance system, of a family allowance. If we had those things in place, a living wage, imagine how many fewer cases in child protection, or how many how many fewer people would need child welfare services. If neoliberalism believes that markets are the only ways to organize public goods, democracies can think about maybe constructing uh, ways of public deliberation and ideas of justice, um, rules that are created by the people, for the people, rather than maybe um, by markets or managed uh, to look like markets. 
if neoliberalism it sees individuals as solely economic actors, democracy can see us as social and political ones, that it's not just about our economic lives, that we don't want to live an ec economic life in our family with our children. We want to live a life, social life of caregiving. We want to live a life of imparting values of human, the, the value of humans, humankind. These, these are ideas of democracy. So democracy is a set of ideas um, is it has it puts people back in the driver's seat people who are affected by the policies we are the government and we should have an impact on how our government benefits and rights are um are uh, dispersed to us and 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 as public goods they shouldn't be limited we should have access to them um so uh i think that's our big idea here that we can think about in social work, how can we be agents of democracy rather than agents of neoliberalism? Um, and I think the child welfare example is a, is a great example of uh, maybe an area that we, could, we should really start thinking about this more carefully. What do you think, Rudy? No, I think that was very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but um, definitely there's, you know, social workers are doing their best Yeah. But we need to think together how we're doing better, not because we're not trying, right. it's because there's things to be done differently. Absolutely. And this idea that we don't want to responsibilize child welfare workers for all these issues, just that they're a piece of the puzzle that we all have a vested interest in changing this. So uh, universities, um, our community members, our elected officials, etc. Absolutely. We're all part of a bigger movement, I think, here. Exactly. Well, Rudy, I want to thank you so much for your work on this project and for helping us understand child welfare, uh, specifically in neoliberalism. And um, uh, anything else you'd like to say before you? No, not right now. I just want to say thank you. And I hope we continue these conversations. I do, too. And in fact, thanks <laughs> for that lead in, because we have one more podcast on this impacts of neoliberalism on social work practice. And I'm very excited that our next podcast will be with the renowned Mimi Abramovitz, social welfare history and policy scholar, and uh, Jennifer Zelnick, um, her collaborator on many projects with neoliberalism. We're going to hear about their findings of a of managerialism, especially in New York City, uh, managerialism among social service, human service providers, and um, we get some more uh, Uh, numbers and um, impacts of neoliberalism with that conversation. So I hope folks tune into that. Yeah, looking forward to hear that. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.